Hello and welcome to At The Pass. I'm your host Adam Vetterell, and this is a show about the Ottawa restaurant scene for the Ottawa restaurant scene. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to At The Pass. I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Chef Dominique Dufour. She is the chef and co-owner of Little Italy's Grey Jay, a restaurant she owns with her husband. If you listened to the last episode of the podcast, you heard from Imran Texera, who competed on the last season of Top Chef Canada, and Dominique makes up the second half of the Ottawa contingent on that show. I look forward to asking her about all of that, but Dominique, first of all, good morning, Dominique. We're recording this quite early. Did you work last night? I did work last night, and thank you for having me. Good morning to you, too. All right. So I usually start by asking you, how did you get into cooking? How did you become a chef? And for you specifically, I want to know what brought you from Montreal to Ottawa? Well, so I started in the kitchen kind of by mistake or uh, as a byproduct of what I was previously doing. So I've always worked in kitchens uh, to fund my studies. And eventually I graduated, started working in my previous field and my partner at the time remarked that the only time I was really happy was when I was going to the restaurant. I was researching, you know, recipes on my personal time, trying stuff at home. And he said, you know, you may want to think about changing your field. So eventually, you know, being hardheaded, I still ended up doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I went to culinary school, did all that over again, worked kind of across Canada And then when I was in Montreal, I met the owners of Le Germain Hotel who needed a chef to helm their new hotel. I was already quite busy at the time and I really had no interest in moving to Ottawa, didn't know anything about Ottawa, but eventually with a lot of persuasion, they (laughs) got me to move here for a year, a year contract Mm -hmm. uh, to open Le Germain which was an incredibly formative experience. This is my first time working for a big corporation, my first time helming a, such a large project and having to do with construction, which came in quite handy afterwards when I ended up opening my own restaurant because mm-hmm. I had already some experiences there. Um, and then once my contract was over with Le Germain, I decided that it was my time to open something because I didn't want to work for anyone anymore. And uh, I thought about Toronto, where I had been for six years, and when I, where I went to culinary school, I thought about going back to Montreal. But in the end, Ottawa had this just sort of perfect mixture of uh, lifestyle and you know quality. The quality of life in Ottawa is quite exceptional. There's a, a bubbling, very young culinary scene that I think is quite emergent, and it's not overly saturated. So I, and everybody had been so welcoming to me that I just decided, you know what, try it out in Ottawa and see how she goes. Hmm. Yeah, that that's interesting to me. That I feel like a lot of people go in the other direction. They they start cooking in Ottawa, but eventually they want to go to Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver, like a bigger Canadian city. So. Uh, it's kind of cool to hear you going back the other way. <laughs> so you were working at Le Germain and then I think that's where I met you, actually. Uh, I had dinner yes. there one night and you came out and we had talked. We ended up talking for a long time. Um, <laughs> what At what point did you decide it was a good idea to go on Top Chef and talk me through that uh, that decision making process? Well, I actually um, said no several times before going on Top Chef. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um because, well, first off, I had just opened my own restaurant. I was, when they asked me to compete on last season's 
my restaurant was probably a month old. Okay. Uh, there was no way I was willing to step away. So they, you know, they, they took my answer and then they came back to me and, you know, had the very good arguments that I didn't know a lot of people in the city and probably needed some publicity with a new restaurant. And then, you know, obviously they tell you, you could win $100,000. And having just opened the restaurant, I was in a tremendous amount of debt, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And just thought, all right, you know what? I could use the money. Maybe, you know, mold it over with my husband. How could we possibly do it? We also have a very small staff of about five people. Mm-hmm. So it was a big gaping hole in our schedule. But eventually, uh, with friends and a lot of help from our family to try and keep everybody afloat, uh, I ended up being able to carve out a schedule that worked. And then I eventually said yes to Top Chef. I obviously did the proper interview process afterwards, went to do um, there's two different tests uh, that you have to go through before you can be selected as an actual Top Chef contestant. I did both of those and then there I was. Yeah, that, that's so crazy. So so you get on the show. Did you did you know there would be another person from Ottawa? Did, and do you know Imran from before? Or was that a surprise? So um, I had, you have no idea of who's there. Um it's a complete surprise when, you know, you walk in and the contestants are revealed. It's in real time. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's absolutely quite real. And, I mean, I've never watched Top Chef, so <laughs> I have no idea how surprised I look when I saw Imran, but I was thoroughly surprised. Yeah, Imran said the same thing, that he also didn't watch the show. I think it's crazy. Both you guys went on the show. You'd never seen it before. <laughs> I mean, I I never watched it before, and I didn't watch it since. Mm. Like, I have no idea how it came across, what happened. Like, you know, I lived through it. I think that was enough for me, so I didn't actually watch it. That's so interesting to me. That's like, I, and I actually probably would be the same. Imran's watched all the episodes, but I, I like I can't even listen to this podcast uh, after I record it. So the idea of like watching myself on TV having Mark McEwen insult one of my plates would be like, I would just never do it. But, uh, the whole thing seems so stressful. Like I, so I typically don't watch that show because it, it gives me horrible anxiety. And, uh, but I watched it for, to prepare for these interviews and, uh, there were some really intimidating judges. Like I, I was really impressed with the quality of people they were to get able to get on that show. Was there one in particular that like freaked you out when they first walked out? Well, obviously, uh, Patrick Chris is a huge, you know, chef in Canada. He homes the best restaurant in Canada at the moment and for several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that that's a bit of a cold sweat when you first see him. Uh, but at, at the same time, I kind of try to always put myself back in a space where, you know, it, it's a game. It's It's not really real life. Yes, it's cringeworthy and intimidating and <laughs> so very, very stressful and demanding. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, I'm not failing to, you know, 100 or 200 guests who came for dinner, paid good money, had their anniversary ruined. To me, that's a lot more pressure when it's such a special moment for people than for, you know, judges and guest chefs that you know are just really there because it's exposure like all of us yeah 
Yeah, I felt like one of the things that frustrated me was like I could see doing like say the quick fire challenges really time pressured because that's sort of the whole point of them. But then some of the more elaborate ch- challenges when they're asking you guys to like show us who you are and and all that cheesy stuff, but then they only give you like an hour and a half, two hours to prep. And it's like, well, <laughs> that like if I was at my restaurant, I would take, you know, considerably more time than that. So did, did that ever frustrate you? You'd be like, well, if you really want to see what I can do, give me enough time to do it. Yes, but to be quite honest with you, there's a lot of people who, well, A, had to watch Top Chef. Uh, big mistake. If you ever decide to do it, please watch it. <laughs> It'll help. I promise. Because because people were um, familiar with the format, with, yeah. uh, okay, there's a restaurant war, there is um, like several different types of quick fire challenges, and people had also um, practiced so many different skills that they understood would be useful on the show. Uh, I think it was a mixture of being naive and possibly a little cocky on my part to just go in, you know, blind. Most of my focus was to actually prepare the restaurant to do well while I was gone. So once I got to Top Chef, I was sort of just, okay, well, I'll I'll cook because I know how to cook. But I was against people who had, you know, rehearsed and watched and understood how to present themselves, where I was sort of just on a whim, uh, which was not the greatest idea. I don't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Was there a point during the process where you were like, what am I doing? I, I wish I wasn't here. Or, or, I every, mean, every single day. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, seemed, it seemed like terrifying and stressful. And so let's talk about the the challenge you got eliminated on the, uh, it was the restaurant wars, correct? Yes. It was yeah. Wars. So, so were you, was like part of you relieved just to be like, all right, at least I'm done. And do, do you get to stay for a little while or do you get to go home? Like how, how does that work? Uh, it really depends on where in the process you get eliminated. Um, there's some people who got eliminated and stayed for kind of up to a week afterwards, depending on what they still have to film because every week is, uh, very much, structured around the filming and how the the episodes are edited okay yeah so depending on where you get eliminated sometimes you have to stay for an entire week after or sometimes you get to go home i got to go home almost right away i only had one day of filming after oh that's good yeah it was very relieving i i was some people had to stay for a week they were not happy no (laughs) but um but yes, so uh, Restaurant Wars, I uh, got eliminated on that challenge. Uh, and yes, I, I, I'd i say after the second day, every single day, I thought to myself, if I go home, I get to start cooking again. Because the Top Chef is, is not really cooking. You do a little bit of it, but most of it is impressions, interviews, uh, getting ready and waiting. It's a lot of hurry up and wait yeah. all day. Yeah, waiting for like the celebrities to get there, for for the cameraman to get set up, and and all that stuff. I can imagine that would be, and then and you're obviously just stressing out the whole time, thinking like, oh my god, this is, I'm gonna have to cook in a few minutes, but I don't know what. And yeah, I, I again the whole time I watch it, I'm like, how on earth would anybody like? I would just pass out at some point, probably. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's a few times I thought I was going to pass out or hurl. I mean, several times. <laughs> but also, it made me realize a lot of things about myself. Like, when I come up with a dish, I take days, weeks to come up with that dish. And until I actually got there and was put under pressure, 
with creating something, I didn't realize that about myself, that it takes me days to just work out the little details and, you know, test and retest. And, you know, now it's now I'm quite aware of that. Uh, but until I actually got there and got put in front of that fact, I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, that that has actually one takeaway I thought of when I was watching it is as an experience, it's really rare for chefs to get honest, critical feedback right away. Like a, if you make a dish that's decent, most people are polite and they'll just sort of eat it and say, oh, that's thank you or whatever. But but you guys were getting like really harsh, like nitpicking, like they're, you know, pulling apart every element. And I'm sure it was stressful when it was happening. But did it make, do you think it made you a better chef? Do you think you're more critical at looking at your own dishes now going forward, realizing like sort of ticking all the boxes that they were ticking while they were going through it? Again, I don't know what has been edited in or out. Um, so there's a lot of material that they go through when we actually do get judged. It's mm. a very long process. I'd say it's probably, uh, I mean, close to an hour. Wow. So it's, it's a lot to take in. I think that no matter what, I'm still probably more critical than they ever were okay. <laughs> of my own dishes. But uh, it was definitely a formative experience in the sense that you also get to see things from a different point of view, from what people are looking for in dishes. And you also see yourself either reflected or not, no matter what, in their taste and what they want. But one of the things that surprised me the most was how much they uh, liked salt. Um, one of the things that I got told quite often in the first few dishes was uh, it's undersalted. I was like, wow, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> it into consideration sure of course yep um so you have to you do have to tweak your cooking style for sure when you're there yeah for sure it seems like it also seems like they're trying to like there's been a a couple times where they tell a a chef in like an earlier episode well we want to see you do less of this and more of that or uh something so then it's you can tell it gets in the head of the chef where they're trying to cook but it's they're not making what they would necessarily first come up with when when they get presented with a challenge they're more trying to they have like a specific judge in mind where they're like okay well last time they didn't like this or they asked me for more of that so there's a lot of mind games going on whereas the restaurant it's just like what what do i think people want to eat at my restaurant it's pretty simple yes and it's also you know when i think most chefs are very influenced also by seasons, by producers uh when you completely lose that aspect and you're just constantly presented with a fully stocked kitchen uh, that has everything from around the world all day every day mm-hmm. um, I think the choice being so wide also becomes a little dizzying because I'm personally very attached to my roots the seasons uh, farmers and that's a large part of my inspiration but when you're there in this completely sterile environment with everything under the sun it's kind of like too much choice is too much <laughs> yeah yeah it's like spoiled for for choice and then yeah, it's hard to like focus on one thing yes so let's let's stop talking about that uh i, I think on the on the description on instagram for for imran's post i, I called it the hunger games so we'll, we'll move <laughs> on from that and uh let's talk about something more fun uh your restaurant describe sort of how did you come to think that you were going to open your own place? Uh, was it something you always wanted to do or, or was there like an epiphany while you're working at the hotel? 
Well, I, for the longest part of my career, I always told myself that I would never open my own restaurant because it looked like hell. Every restaurant owner I ever encountered seemed to be struggling (laughs) and seems to be, you know, always in the throes of something difficult. Like a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's great. Um, but when while I was working at the hotel, um, my dad passed away. And, I'm sorry to hear uh, that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I was very, very close to him. He was a huge mentor. And um, I kind of thought to myself, well, fuck it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. And... You know, he he died quite young, and I was like, I don't want to have any regrets. Hmm. Um, So I decided to go for it, even though it's a huge risk and something that I always thought was going to be too painful of an experience to do myself. I figured, you know, I've been through something that's a little horrible, so let's let's go for it and chase your dream, you know? Well, that's awesome. I think... uh... It's not awesome how you came to that epiphany, obviously, <laughs> but but it's it's great that you that you did it, and and I think you have such a strong personality, so it's it it suits you to have a place where you can sort of express your your personality in the restaurant. Um, your husband's your partner, so so what role does he play? Is is he sort of front of house, or does he just help manage the business? Or uh, Devin and I met in the kitchen. We met cooking. Uh, we were working together in Toronto, and I was uh, the sous chef for a big restaurant, and he was uh, the grill cook, the most talented grill cook I've ever met, actually. Wow. <laughs> I, <laughs> he's quite talented. And so, I mean, eventually, uh, we ended up moving to Yukon together, and we both were working in different restaurants, but once a month, we would always come together in Yukon and do, uh, like, a tasting menu. Mm. We absolutely loved it, and it, it was kind of our time to feed off of each other and really shine together and have crazy ideas, uh, and it, it kept us going. And then from there, in Montreal, we worked together in kitchens the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had always, uh, or for a very long time, we had worked together, and now, uh, we, I mean, obviously, we still do. He does... I mean, we do everything together in the kitchen. Uh, he also does take care of a lot of the front of the house responsibilities because uh, he is a very graceful man, and I am not. <laughs> he, well, you're definitely not a man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but he's he is attentive and you know graceful and has that you know perfect charm that people need to possess when they deal with guests and clients. And he has that ability to whisk them into a wonderful evening. So he's taken on a little bit of that there. And then in terms of accounting and everything else, I think we share most duties. I deal with most of the accounting that has to do with food. He deals with what has to do with the front of the house. Um, But when it comes to recipe testing and menus, uh, we do everything together still. Well, that's great. It uh, it seems like you guys have sort of figured out like a, like a good formula for a good restaurant. Have you noticed your your style of cooking changing, or how is how has being the owner changed what you cook and how you cook? Has it liberated you more, or are you finding you're feeling constrained by by the customers or by money or or anything like that? 
being this chef has definitely liberated me in the sense that I don't have someone telling me you need to have a pasta on your menu. You need to have a scallop dish and you need to have a steak. Because if you don't have that, people won't come. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which is false. People will still come. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, yes, it's definitely liberated me. It also opens the door to a million questions. Obviously, you question yourself a lot more when you're the sole proprietor and also this, the sole idea machine behind everything. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's very it's a lot of introspection and it's a lot of trying to think uh, on the behalf of your guest. But what I found so far is that at the end of the day, if you cook something that makes you so deeply happy uh, that it, you can make it transpire at the table, your, you know, your staff understands why you're cooking it and everybody is, you know, kind of really motivated by that. Um, eventually your, your guests will pick up on it as well. And I don't think that, I don't think that there's any, you know, recipe for a perfect menu or, you know, perfect balance in, in a restaurant. I think it's constantly evolving in my case anyhow. And I've been trying to keep my head down and just look inwards for inspiration and at my farmers. And that's sort of been my approach to the restaurant so far. How, how often do you change your menu? I'd say every two weeks. Mm -hmm. I have to control myself. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. And that's probably my worst fault is that I get, especially in the summer. In the winter, it's easier because the produce are much more few and far in between because mm -hmm. I use only Canadian. Um, but in the summer, I, <laughs> I have to really hold it in <laughs> because otherwise I would change my menu four times a week. <laughs> Every time there's a new bean or a new cucumber on the farmer market stand, I'd be like, let's do something with this. Um, yeah, it's very, so it's very difficult when uh, <laughs> when everything comes in. Because, yeah, we're so starved for for choice for like eight months. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, this morning I had that feeling because Chris, my business partner, texted me all these uh, at Madame Rochon's stall. There's all these different varieties of melons. And, and I currently don't even have melon on my menu. And I freaked out. And I was like, well, what am I going to how am I going to get that on? And what do I take off? And yeah, it's it's I go through that all summer. I think every chef has that problem. Yes, it's a little bit of uh, attention deficit disorder in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> and the other frustrating thing is Ottawa is kind of like sleepy in the summer. Like most I mean, right now is different because there's a pandemic. But but even in normal summers, uh it, I, I don't know about your business, but like North and Navy, we slow down quite a bit because a lot of our clients go to cottages and they're, they're, they work for the government. So they go back to their constituencies or whatever. So it's like the slowest time of year is the time of year where we have the coolest stuff and the nicest, uh, the nicest product. And I get so bummed out. I'm like, guys, you're missing all the good stuff. <laughs> yes, exactly the same for us. Uh, I mean, and that's from one year of experience, eight, eight months of regular service and now five months of pandemic. So, you know, it's, it's take it for what it's worth, but so far in my experience, it's been slow in the summer. And then as soon as September rolls around, it starts ramping up all the way to the holidays. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I love fall and I love fall vegetables, but I completely agree with you. <laughs> Just so desperate for people to come and eat all those beautiful, perfect fruit and vegetables. 
Um, so actually at the restaurant, we've I've been finding myself still buying all the things that I want to put on the menu. Oh yeah. But right now I just have so many mason jars filled to the brim <laughs> with uh, the tomatoes and the plums and the peaches and uh, everything that I want to put on my menu, but that I can't necessarily at this moment. And I'm just trying to, you know, encapsulate summer for the winter. Yeah. That's a hundred percent. The lesson I've learned is yeah, take all that energy and all that excitement and put it into jars so you can open them when you're busy in January because you don't want to not buy the stuff. Like when the plums are perfect from Niagara, you have to get them. And when the peaches are, are like the best, you you have to buy them. Whether whether anyone's coming or not, you, you have to get them. So you just have to find a way to keep them like that uh, for as long as possible. So when you're not eating at uh, or working at the restaurant, are there do you have like favorite kinds of restaurants you eat at in Ottawa and, and how have you, cause you're kind of new to Ottawa. How have you found the dining scene and, and what's your impression of the dining scene in Ottawa? Oof, that's a big question. Um, and it's a big question to answer working in our dining scene because everyone in Ottawa is so it's such a close knit community which I find is, you know, a, a strength and a weakness in many cases because so many people have worked in the same restaurants and there's so many, you know, uh, links or relationships that have been built over decades in certain cases. However, I certain times I, I feel like it needs some fresh blood, which, which we now get. It's good mm. to see people going out and going to Fogo Island, going to Montreal, going to Toronto and coming back to the city. Um, it, and it's great because they bring their experience, they bring new things and they get people motivated to do certain things. Um, and the dining scene, I think, is expanding a lot, which is great. I still think that one of the hard things with Ottawa is that almost every time it's multi-million dollar projects that are very well backed uh, by many investors, which is great because it provides this beautiful dining environment, uh, you know, these magical spaces where people can go to celebrate their anniversary or special occasions. But what I found slightly deplorable is that by having all these very big uh, enterprises, we I miss a little bit, you know, the small mom and pop restaurants that creates that neighborhood life that I, I'm used to seeing a lot in, in Toronto and in Montreal, where, uh, you know, it's smaller enterprises, but that have more of a, a neighborhood feel. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's what I wish for Ottawa to see more of. It's the smaller enterprises that grow, not to take away from the bigger ones, but to create communities that are, you know, um, that, that become the heart of the neighborhood and become make it a vibrant lifestyle. And to see also small players have a chance to make it. Yeah, well, I think what you're hitting on is something I, I think about a lot, too. It's because I find like, yeah, we're often competing with these bigger, these bigger organizations, but I think it's actually a strength of places like ours that we are kind of a mom and pop shop. Like if you, if you come to North and Navy, you're going to see me or you're going to see Chris. And if, if you go to Gray J, I'm going to see you, I know I'm going to see you. And, and I think that's something we can offer that those big, those big companies can't offer. And that's something that I think the clients really appreciate. And maybe they don't even think about it 
before they go. But then once they go a few times, we can give them a feeling that sort of those bigger companies can't give, uh, which is a lot more intimate. And I think that's why we like our experiences. We get repeat business because people love that feeling and they love feeling like they're coming into a little house instead of a, instead of a big open space. Yes, I totally agree. And it's, it's been crazy, especially with the pandemic, um, how many close relationships you build. <laughs> I never thought that I would uh, be exchanging text messages with uh, guests, you know, <laughs> a year in. Some of my guests, you know, when they go travel to Quebec, shoot me an email or a text message being like, hey, where should I go and eat? Can you, do you have any recommendation? And I think something that I've really come to cherish is those relationships. And I'm looking forward to building more of those. And I totally agree with your point. It is true. Yeah. Um, so that's, so that's what I, I would say is to anyone starting a, like a smaller restaurant is lean on that. Make that your, the biggest strength of your restaurant is that you are, uh, this is just you. It's not, uh, it's not a bunch of, uh, a bunch of people up in some boardroom or something. This is just you and, and your food. And, and it's basically like you're inviting them into your living room, which is something I think uh, people really, really enjoy. You mentioned the word community before, and, and that seems like something that you're really into. When you were in, uh, when you were in Montreal, you founded Le Femme Chef de Montréal, uh, mm-hmm. an organization um, to promote female chefs and to sort of strengthen that community. Um, would you mind uh, talking a little bit about that? Uh, of course. Um, when I got to Montreal, uh, I found that, uh, you know, the scene was very, uh, you know, it was very masculine, the food scene in Montreal. Uh, despite the fact that some of the greatest chefs were women, you know, the media was just kind of disproportionate in its representation of uh, the chefs in the city. And I also found that, as a woman, you know, in your 30s, when you get to your mid-30s, is usually the peak of, you know, where you find yourself in your career and you have a lot of options open to you. But at 35 years old, it's also uh, when you reach about 65% fertility and it declines by 5% every year after that. So you are at such a crossroad and there's so little to help women who work at night. There's so few nighttime daycares and stuff like that, that I really found that on top of having a disproportionate representation in the media, women in the kitchen also had very little in terms of social support to pursue a career that was at night that had uh, uncommon hours and for me, the best way to try and better the situation was to create a support system of women who would shine the spotlight on each other, but also have, you know, someone to commiserate with, maybe someone to babysit if that was needed, mm-hmm. and eventually try and uh, create something to help each other thrive in this uh, in this climate, in this profession. That's incredible that it... it- it's interesting. I never really heard it described like that, but, but it does make sense uh, that that is a barrier to, to, so my wife is a nurse and, and she used to work nights. Uh, so she was kind of facing the same problem. Like if you're going to have kids and she did work with, uh, with nurses who, who worked overnights and, but it is a huge hurdle to overcome. It's, it's not to be taken lightly. So I, I think it's incredible that you, th- you were thinking about that, even as somebody who you don't even, you don't have kids, do you? 
No, I don't have kids. So uh, it's crazy that you were you're thinking about that on other people's behalf. It's it's a. Uh... Well, I think it becomes a glaring reality as you approach your thirties in this profession, right? It's and it it's crazy to think about when you're younger because it's so far from from your realm of reality. But when you you know you meet the right person you start, you know, gaining momentum in your career. And then all of a sudden you start facing these questions because you go to your gynecologist and he's like, Hey, TikTok lady, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you go, okay, well, I'm freaking out a little. Also, uh, I'm probably not the only one freaking out. So why isn't anybody talking about this? (laughs) Do you find things have, have, there's been so much talk about, uh, about the industry, the Me Too movement and all that stuff, but for all that talk, have you seen any progress or do you think it's, it's just lip service? Well, that's a, that's a hard question. And I think that associating the Me Too movement with women in the industry is kind of a, a, a tricky thing to do because uh, as, as much as there has been abuse in the industry, uh, you know, the, the Me Too movement is much broader. Mm-hmm. And I, I would like to see women in the industry as, represented in a positive manner, uh, not associated with something negative. Um, but I, I, I have seen progress for sure. And at the moment, I think in Ottawa in particular, some of the most uh, vivacious young chefs that we have to look to are uh, women, which I think is amazing. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of, you know, uh, Emma and Caroline at Corner Peach that are just exploding. They're so vivacious and uh, so brilliant in their marketing and their their business model is extremely sustainable and has taken some great turns with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They're, yeah, they, they're they've really done innovating. Impro- like what they did with their with their shop has been so impressive. Uh, it's It's, I think, like... And you can see around the city, like everyone's sort of cribbing notes from them. They're definitely leading the pack in that in that sense. Definitely, and they they're innovators. They're and just the the sheer joy. And I know that sometimes that's the fault of of social media because we all see the best and not the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they genuinely look happy, and it's it's been great to to, to see. But yeah, so I think that there's so many problems <laughs> with just our society in general, and to just boil it down to has it been has it moved forward? Um, yes, definitely, yes, uh, it has. Do we still have you know a way to go to get to where we should be to have support for women in the industry? And as I was saying before, for women who also want to have families, yes, we need to. We still need to get there but you know at this moment it's it's funny because there's so many larger problems that yeah. you know I've, I've almost forgotten about the, the problems of women in the industry because these seem so small in comparison to what we're facing right now yeah it it, it seems insane that uh that like where we are right now and and it's it's been weird recording this podcast because you know, I, I want, I try to keep it positive and I want to talk about exciting things like, you know, your experience on TV and your, your restaurant, but you know, in the back of, I'm sure both of our heads the whole time, it's like, you know, there's these bills piling up and there's these, these problems. What's the second wave going to do? How, how have you found that? Have you been like, how are you dealing with the stress of owning a business that's, 
affected by the pandemic during the pandemic? Well, it's been okay. So first off, when it when it started, I I didn't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. I I was I was uh, delusional, and my husband kept laughing at me. I was like, no, 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 it'll be back uh, in two to three weeks. Maybe <laughs> it'll be a month. Uh, it, it'll be fine, you know. And I just uh, really was angry with relinquishing control over something that I had worked so hard to build. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was definitely my first reaction. Um, I, I, I'm a fighter, so I was, I was fighting like all hell. <laughs> then you, it's almost like the stages of grieving. Then you feel defeated. <laughs> uh, then you try and reflect on what the community needs. And that's kind of where my head was, uh, during the phase one, uh, was trying to provide people with, uh, family meals and things that, probably they would want to eat during this pandemic and going to takeout. And I mean, ever since it's just been a constant pivoting, um, the patios and the initiatives that the city had to let people open patios, it has been great. However, um, I do feel like there's been some streets that have been, uh, you know, that have been favorized over others. And then I wonder how do the neighborhoods that don't have, uh, you know, pedestrian streets, how are they uh, coping in comparison to other neighborhoods that have pedestrian streets who attract, you know, hundreds of people every weekend? Mm -hmm. Uh, How was that decided? (laughs) But then also now that, you know, patios are winding down, it's, it's a very cold end of summer, much colder than we're used to. Now we're at a point where we have to pivot again. And it's trying to anticipate at this point what is going to work. Are people ready to come back inside? Are people going to go towards takeout again? What can we offer to stay uh, in support of our community, but to also remain relevant? So I think uh, all the pivoting has made my head spin a little, like you, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's been in a, a wild ride. Of course. Um and then obviously there's 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 a little anger because you know I'm sure just like you um, you know we we pour ourselves into these businesses and you're all in and all of a sudden it's something that's so out of your control but then you don't want to uh, you know wallow in self pity because at the end of the day we're still healthy and there's people dying and it seems so selfish mm-hmm. so it's this kind of sort of conundrum where you feel these very strong emotion but at the same time realistically you don't feel like you should be allowed to have those yeah yeah it's it there's a, a real like give and take and and i find ottawa to be a particularly strange example because our version of the pandemic has been so easy i want to say like we we live in a city where almost everyone's employed by the government or universities or hospitals and all of those people kept their paychecks. So we're not experiencing a recession the way a lot of other cities are. And we also were able, most of our citizens were able to work from home, which means we didn't really get a big outbreak. So we never saw firsthand uh, COVID-19, like very few people even saw anyone who got it. And yet we're totally shut down because of it. So it's almost surreal. It's like, 
we're, we're making all these sacrifices, but we don't even see the thing, which is a good thing. You don't want to see it. Uh, but it, it just seems so strange to like, so my wife is on call. If, if potentially the hospitals were to get overrun, she would be called in. But the, the areas in the hospitals that they've set aside for, for, uh, COVID patients have been mostly empty since the beginning. And so it's this strange, uh, it's like a disaster movie without the disaster. Yes. It's, you know, it's been, it's been quite crazy and you, I want to be vigilant, especially for all of our loved ones. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily about any of us. It's about, you know, protecting people that we love and people that are more vulnerable, but it's so hard to take things seriously. And I am not saying, saying that for my sake, because I completely understand why it's so serious but I understand for people that are, you know, younger or who haven't seen anything firsthand um, and who don't understand, you know, what COVID is, um, that it's kind of a toothless wolf at this point when we see it in their city, but we don't see any ravages and we can only count ourselves lucky, but it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because I feel like I've had this conversation like, 50 times in the last couple of weeks, but it's, it, it's like goes nowhere. It's just a lot of throwing your hands up and being like, well, I, at the end of the day, you can't really do anything about it anyway. So you just got to wait. Um, do you think that your customers will come back and be comfortable to sit in a dining room full of people? Or are you optimistic that when, you know, let's, let's imagine optimistically that the second wave isn't really that bad. And so we start transitioning towards a, uh, a normal life again. Do, do are you confident that uh, that people won't be traumatized and they'll just start going to restaurants again? Um, I think that it's very dependent on um, <clears throat> certain age group. Um, I think that the age groups that are the least vulnerable are going to be the most comfortable first. Um, and people who don't have at-risk dependents, things like that, um, you know, young single professionals are definitely going to be probably the first ones to come back in mm-hmm. You know, in my opinion, um, but then if everybody is going to be comfortable, no, not at all. Obviously, I, you know, my my mom, uh, my in laws, I don't think are going to be comfortable going back to restaurants until there's a vaccine, mm-hmm. which I want to say uh, in the positive, <laughs> the positive person that I am, uh, you know, a year away, but realistically, maybe several years away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then again, is it's the question of, are we going to get desensitized to the threat? And I think that in the first few months of winter, no, not at all. I think that it's going to, you know, takeout is going to have to remain a part of our lives for a, a long time for us to survive if we want to. And I think it's going to be a very gradual return. I look forward to it, but I think that's going to be a very gradual return. Have you found like, cause your food is so like the way you played, it's really whimsical and there's lots of garnish. And uh, so have you found that like stifling to have to put food in a takeout container or, or are you embracing the challenge of making your food kind of look really pretty, but be able to travel? I think um, it's just, it's cooking differently. Um, Mm -hmm. When I try and think of takeout, I don't try and make it something that I have to plate in a container. It's, it's, I, it's useless, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I am aware of the fact that people are going to put the box on the side. 
it's not going to look the way it is yeah. when you get home, right? <laughs> uh, so I try and make things that are that appeal to a whimsical part of yourself, but in a different way. I'm trying to make things that bring back memories that uh, make you feel things because, oh my God, my mom used to make it that way. Or, you know, this is so special. It's once in a season, you get these beautiful peaches. Um, I think that there's other ways than plating to appeal to people's sensibilities. Um, But that's where I've had to sort of lay my head in this pandemic takeouts. Yeah, we've had to, we've had to think a lot about because takeout is still a reasonable part of our business. It's, it's, when we first started doing takeout at North and Navy, it was really, really popular. Um, but then as, as the summer dragged on, I think it's leveled off to an area that we can expect it to sort of stay at for a while. And, uh, so we have to like consider our dishes when we're changing the menu, we have to be like, does this travel? And we don't put everything on the menu for takeout, but we have to make sure we tick a couple boxes when we're coming up with new menus to make sure there is things that are appropriate for takeout, which has been a really interesting challenge, especially in a restaurant that makes pasta by hand. We have to like really consider the noodle shapes we're making. Cause if we do something really challenging and then we sell a bunch of it for takeout there, we've had a couple nights where we made like 25 portions of something. And then we looked at the takeout orders and they were already accounted for. So I had to run back downstairs and keep making noodles. But uh, it's, yeah, it's just a, a strange new world. And I'm curious, I'm always curious to ask people how they think, how long they think it's going to be like this. And, and your opinions seem to echo what most people are saying, where this is going to be how it's going to be for a while. I mean, you know, I don't want it to stay like that for a while. No. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but uh, I have to reason with myself <laughs> because unrealistic expectations are not helping anything. Um, but also, yeah, I totally agree. And to me, I think... Um, trying to figure out what people want to have at home has been uh, probably one of the biggest challenges and what also is can fit on my menu. Mm-hmm. You know, when you come to Grey J, generally speaking, it's dishes that are really kind of out there. Um, not all of it, obviously, but, you know, we have right now, uh, you know, pasta dish that comes out of an egg and we have a blood cake, you know, so... Uh, I don't think that that's what people want to eat when they're (laughs) watching a documentary. I mean, unless it's a serial killer documentary, but still, not everybody's like me. (laughs) Watching the Waco documentary and eating blood cake. I think that could work. (laughs) Yeah, but it's very specific, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So you, you know, I've had to change my thinking, obviously. And it's, it's, it's a struggle because I have to bring myself back to that reality all the time. You know, you want to go crazy and you want to be extremely creative and do what you want, because that's why you open a restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. To do what you want. Um, but we're, we're not there. We're, we're not in that space. Okay. Well, I feel like we've talked about the pandemic long enough and I want to end this on (laughs) something positive because, uh, it's depressing. Um, yes. what, uh, describe a really good dining experience you had in Ottawa and, and sort of what, what made you, was there, was there a particular dining experience that made you think that Ottawa could be a city that you could open an ambitious restaurant like Grey J? Oh, um, I think it's really hard to pinpoint one, but, 
you're really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> and it's also hard not to mention North and Navy because to be honest, uh, it's near the restaurant that I've been the most at, uh, out of all the restaurants. In all oh, the that's West. nice. <laughs> yes. Um, but present company excluded, um, mm-hmm. I would say that um, supply and demand actually has a really consistent food and I think that they also embody the spirit of everything that we've talked about in terms of, you know, independence, like free thinker and beautiful, warm hospitality, which is what I think is the core of hospitality Mm -hmm. and going to restaurants like these, like yours, um, where you feel warm, the dishes are beautiful and you know that someone's put their heart and soul into creating something that they thought was special and to feel it too when it comes to your table um that's really that's been you know the core of my experience with beautiful ottawa uh, gastronomy yeah i think i think supply and demand was was sort of a, a big city restaurant that opened in ottawa like the uh, especially steve's cooking style and stuff it's it's there's not a lot of compromise it's he it's a very clear um like business plan and a very clear food style and and there's there's not a lot of pandering on his menu like oh we'll just put this or that it's it's definitely steve's food and and i think to see the success of that restaurant sort of announced ottawa as like a as like a food city um because also it wasn't in like the market or it wasn't right downtown it's in it's in a neighborhood it's in westboro so so for a restaurant like that to succeed in a neighborhood was was a a big moment, I think, for Ottawa. Yes. And, you know, the first time I came to Ottawa, I was looking for supply and demand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I was um, I was downtown and people were like, oh, that's a far cab. But I still took the cab and I got there and it ended up being closed. I was so disappointed. Mm. <laughs> but I was also surprised by where it was because I exactly, as you said, it, it's in a neighborhood. And I think that's also what gave me, a, you know, the idea that Ottawa is just like Montreal, just like Toronto, a food city, because I'm in the middle of a neighborhood and this is a hot restaurant. And that's what I want to see. You know, I don't want to be in Ottawa where everything is centralized in the market and it's made for tourists and you're going to pay too much for it. Mm-hmm. I want to see, you know, the neighborhoods come alive. And that's what I saw the first time I saw supply and demand. Yeah, that's actually, it seems like a hallmark of big cities with good food scenes is that, most of the time the really good restaurants are off the beaten path and you, and you have to go looking for them. And, you know, if you're a tourist, you, you're not going to just stumble upon them. You have to kind of do some research and figure out where to go. So, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed when, well, so I, I, I was working there when it opened. Uh, I, I worked, I worked for Steve and Jen for two years. So it was, I got to see it sort of from the inside out and it, it was really, it was a really exciting experience to open, to be part of the opening of that restaurant. Really challenging too, because, they got a lot of great press right off the bat and uh, it, it was a very ambitious menu when they first opened. So I worked a hard station and they were long days, but it was really rewarding. And, and I feel like I learned a lot and a lot that helped me when I opened uh, North and Navy in terms of what it's like to open a restaurant and deal with the pressures of everyone staring at you and, and all that. Yes. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. I had no idea you opened uh, Supply and Demand. <laughs> well, I didn't open it. Steve and Jen opened it. I was just there grilling the meats and uh, and uh, <laughs> butchering mackerel all the time. Uh, I I basically worked the uh, the grill station for like the 
first year more or less nonstop. So it was a uh, it was quite an experience. It's really interesting to also see uh, kind of in the same phenomenon you see in Montreal and other cities, which is that from supply and demand, you also see kind of the stemming of great restaurants. Uh, you know, we previously talked about Corner Peach and, you know, I can see kind of the family tree of everybody who's worked for people that had their own ideas and clear vision and now opening their own restaurant and creating this sort of little family of Ottawa restaurateurs that, you know, drive their own business. Yeah. One day I'm going to put together like the family tree of Ottawa restaurants, but it, it it's very, cause it's such a, like Ottawa is a, basically a small town. So you can follow the chefs and there's basically two routes they go through. It's either like it started with the Domus people and the Becta people. And then it kind of went from there uh, and now there's more branches because there's a, a lot more um, high-end restaurants that are making really good food. So the branches keep going out, but that it kind of started, uh, you know, really basic with only a few spots. So, yeah, especially I imagine uh, as far as impressions go to an outsider, there's a lot of that. Uh, y- you end up finding out everyone sort of knows everybody and worked for each other and with each other. So. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Me, I never have any preconceived idea of anyone, but then if you talk to anybody who's been here, they're like, Oh yeah, but this person was there and this other person was here and that's how they know them. And I'm like, Oh my God, I need to get out more. <laughs> I don't know anyone. <laughs> that's funny. Yes. But also when you do make that family trees, just put me in a little planter off to the side. I'll be looking at all you. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. Your, your branch is connected. <laughs> Well, I just want to thank you so much for your time today and uh, and I wish you good luck with the pandemic and I can't wait to sitting in a full Grey J dining room less than two meters away from somebody without a mask at some point in the future. <laughs> thank you so much. Same to you. And also congratulations on your, like, I mean, wonderful response to this pandemic. You've been also at the forefront of the takeout initiative and feeding first response workers and like, watching you as well as corner beach has been quite inspiring. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Yes. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to at the pass. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a nice review and feel free to get in touch. My email is adam at northandnavy.com. Navy.com.